Chapter One of Doctor Nicholas' Experiment by Guy Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter One. It is a sad enough thing at any time for a man to have to confess himself a failure. But I think it will be admitted that it is doubly so at that period of his career, when he is not only young enough to have had some flickering sparks of ambition left, but old enough to appreciate at their proper value the overwhelming odds against which he has been battling so long and with such conspicuously poor success. Such was my case. I had entered the medical profession seemingly with everything in my favour. My father had built up a reputation for himself and what he prized still more a competency as a country practitioner of the old-fashioned sort in the west of england i was his only child as he was in the habit of saying he looked to me to carry the family name up to those dizzy heights at which he had often gazed but on which he had never aspired to set his foot a surgeon i was to be willy-nilly it may have been a throwback to the parental instinct alluded to above which led me at once to picture myself flying at express speed, regardless of cost, across Europe, in obedience to the summons of some potentate whose life and throne depended upon my dexterity and knowledge. In due course I entered a hospital and followed the curriculum in the orthodox fashion. It was not, however, until I was approaching the end of my student days that I was burnt with that fire of enthusiasm which was destined ultimately to consume me altogether. Among the students of my year was a man by whose side I had often worked, with whom I had occasionally exchanged a few words, but whose intimate I could not in any way claim to have been. In appearance, he was narrow-shouldered, cadaverous, lantern-jawed fellow, dark, restless eyes, who boasted the name of Kelleran, and was properly supposed to be an Irishman. As I discovered later, however, he was not an Irishman at all, but hailed from the black country, Wolverhampton, if I remember rightly, being the city which he claimed the honour of his birth. His father had been the senior partner in an exceedingly wealthy firm of hardware manufacturers, and while we had been in the habit of pitying, and in some instances, I'm afraid, of rather looking down on the son on account of his supposed poverty, he was, in all probability, in a position to buy up every other man in the hospital twice over. The average medical student is a being with whom the world in general has by this time been made fairly familiar. His frolics and capacity, or incapacities you may choose to term it, for work have been the subject of innumerable jests. If this be a true picture, then Kelleran was certainly different to the usual run. In his case, the order was reversed. With him, work was play, and play was work, while a jest was a thing unknown, and for which he allowed it to be seen that he had not the slightest tolerance. I have already said that my father had a master competency. I must now add that up to a certain point he was a generous man with my allowance. Under different circumstances, it would have been ample for my requirements. As ill luck would have it, however, I'd got into the wrong set, and before I had been two years in the hospital, was over head and ears in such a quagmire of debt and difficulties 
and it looked as if nothing but an absolute miracle could serve to extricate me to my father i dared not apply easy going as he was in most matters i had good reason to know that on the subject of debt he was inexorable and yet to remain in my present condition was impossible on every side tradesmen threatened me my landlady's account had not been paid for weeks while among the men of the hospital not one but several held my paper for sums lost at cards the remembrance of which which sent a cold shiver down my back every time i thought of them from all this it will be surmised that my position was not only one of considerable difficulty but that it was also one of no little danger unless i could find a sufficient sum if not to free myself at least stave off my creditors my career as far as the world of medicine was concerned might be considered at an end even now i can recall the horror of that period as vividly as if it were but yesterday it was on a thursday i remember that the thunderclap came on returning to my rooms in the evening i discovered a letter awaiting me trembling fingers i tore open the envelope and drew out the contents as i feared it proved to be a demand from the most implacable creditor a money-lender to whom i had been introduced by a fellow-student the sum i had borrowed from him with the assistance of a friend been only a trifling one but it helped out by fines and other impositions and it had now increased to an amount which i was aware it was hopelessly impossible for me to pay what was i to do what could i do unless i settled the claim the hope for mercy from the man himself was to say the least of it absurd my friend who i happened to know was himself none too well off at the moment would be called upon to make it good after that how should i be able to face him or anyone else again i had not a single acquaintance in the world from whom i could borrow a sum that would be half sufficient to meet it well i dared not go down to the country and tell my father of my folly and disgrace in vain i ransacked my brains for a loophole of escape then the whistle of a steamer on the river attracted my attention filling my brain with such thoughts that it had never entertained before and i pray by god's mercy may never know again here was a way out of my difficulty if only i had the pluck to try it strangely enough the effect it had upon me was to brace me like a draught of rare wine this was succeeded by a coldness so intense both mind and body were rendered callous by it how long it lasted i cannot say it may have been only a few seconds it may have been an hour before consciousness returned i found myself still standing beside the table holding the fatal letter in my hand like a drunken man i fumbled my way from the room into the hot night outside what was i going to do i did not exactly know i wanted to be alone in some place away from the crowded pavements if possible where i could have time to think and to determine upon my course of action with a tempest of rage against i knew not what in my heart i hurried along up one street and down another until i found myself panting but unappeased upon the embankment opposite temple gardens all around me were the bustle of life of the great city cabs containing men and women in evening dress dashed along girls and their lovers talking in hushed voices went by me arm in arm even the loafers leaning against the stone parapet seemed happy 
in comparison with my wretched self. I looked down at the dark water, gurgling so pleasantly below me, and I remembered that all I had to do, as soon as I was alone, was to drop over the side, allow it to engulf me, and so be done with my difficulties forever. Then, in a flash, the real meaning of what I proposed to do came to me. Coward, coward, I hissed with as much vehemence and horror as if I had been addressing a real enemy instead of myself. To think of taking this way out of your difficulty, if you kill yourself, what will become of the other man? Go to him at once and tell him everything. He has the right to know. The argument was irresistible, and I accordingly turned my heel. I was about to start off in quest of the man I wanted, and I found myself confronted with no less a person than Kelleran. He was walking quickly, and swung his cane as he did so. On seeing me, he stopped. Douglas Ingleby, he said. Well, this is fortunate. You're just the man I want to see. I murmured something in reply. I forget what. I was about to pass on. I'd bargain without my host, however. He had been watching me with his keen, dark eyes. And when he made as if he would walk with me, I was not altogether surprised. You don't object to my accompanying you, I hope, he inquired, by the way of introduction of what he had to say. I've been wanting to have a talk with you for some days past. I'm afraid I'm, wrong, I'm afraid I'm in rather a hurry just now, I answered, quickening my pace a little as I did so. That makes no difference to me, he returned. If I think you're aware, I'm a fast walker. Since you're in a hurry, let's step out. We did so, and for something like fifty yards I proceeded at a brisk pace in perfect silence. This at last became more than I could stand, and I stopped and faced him. What is it you want with me? I asked angrily. Cannot you see that I'm not well tonight and would rather be alone? I can see you're not quite the thing, he answered quietly, still watching me with his grave eyes. This is exactly why I want to walk with you. A little cheerful conversation would do you good. You don't know how clever I am at adapting my manner to other people's requirements. That is the secret of our profession, my dear Ingleby, as you will some day find out. I shall never find it out, I replied bitterly. I've done with medicine. I shall clear out of England, I think. Go abroad. Try Australia or Canada. Anywhere, I don't care where, to get out of this. The very thing, he replied cheerily. But without a trace of surprise. You couldn't do better, I'm sure. You are strong, active, full of life and ambition. You're just the sort of fellow, in fact, to make a good colonist. Must be a grand life, that hewing and hacking a place for oneself in a new country watching and fostering the growth of a nation that may some day take the rank among the powers of the earth. Ha! I like the idea. It is grand. It is magnificent. It makes one tingle to think of it. He threw his arms out and squared his shoulders, as if he were preparing for the struggle he had so graphically described. After that, we did not walk quite so fast. The man had suddenly developed a strange fascination for me, and, as he talked, I hung upon his words with a feverish interest I can scarcely account for now. By the time we reached my lodgings, I'd forgotten my trouble for the time being. When I entered my sitting-room and found the envelope which had contained the fatal letter still lying upon the table, it all rushed back upon me, and with such force that I was well-nigh overwhelmed. Kelleran, meanwhile, had taken up his position on the hearth-rug, whence he watched me with the same expression of contemplative interest upon his face 
to which I have before alluded. Hello, he said at last, after he had been some minutes in the house, and he had begun to overhaul my library. What are these? Where did you pick them up? He had taken a book from the shelf and was holding it tenderly in his hand. I recognised it as one of several volumes of a 16th century work on surgery that I had chanced upon in a bookstall in Holywell Street some months before. Its age and date had interested me, and I had bought it more out of curiosity than for any other reason. Kelleran, however, could scarcely withdraw his eyes from it. It's the very thing I've been wanting to make my set complete, he cried, after I had described my discovery of it. Perhaps you don't know it, but I'm a perfect lunatic on the subject of books. My own rooms, where, by the by, you have never been, are crammed from ceiling to floor, and still I go on buying. Let me see what else you have. So saying, he continued his survey of the room, humming softly to himself as he did so, and pulling out such books as interested him, and heaping them upon the floor. You've by no means a bad collection, he was kind enough to say when he had finished. Judging from what I see here, you must read a great deal more than most of our men. I'm afraid not, I answered. The majority of these books were sent up to me from the country by my father, who thought they might be of service to me, a mistaken notion, for they take up a lot of room, and I've often wished them at Hanover. You have, have you, you goth, he continued. Well then, I'll tell you what I'll do, if you want to get rid of them. I'll buy the lot, these old beauties included. They are really worth more than I can afford, but if you care about it, I'll make you a sporting offer of a hundred and fifty pounds, for such as I've put upon the floor. What do you say? I could scarcely believe I heard aright. His offer was so preposterous that I could have laughed in his face. My dear fellow, I cried, thinking for a moment that he must be joking with me and feeling inclined to resent it. What nonsense you talk! A hundred and fifty for that lot? Well, they're not worth a ten-pound note, all told. The old fellows are certainly curious, but it's only fair that I should tell you that I gave five shillings and sixpence for the set of seven volumes complete. Then you got a bargain such as you'll never find again, he answered quietly. I wish I could make as good an one every day. However, there's my offer. Take it or leave it as you please. I will give you one hundred and fifty pounds for those books and take my chance of their value. If you are prepared to accept I'll get a cab and take them away tonight. I've got my cheque-book in my pocket, and I'll settle up for them on the spot. But, my dear Kelleran, how can you afford to give such? Here I stopped abruptly. I beg your pardon. I know I had no right to say such a thing. Don't mention it, he answered quietly. I'm not in the least offended, I assure you. I've always felt certain you fellows suppose me to be poor. As a matter of fact, however, I have the good fortune all the ill, as I sometimes think, to be able to indulge myself to the top of my bent without fear of the consequences. But that has nothing to do with the subject at present under discussion. Will you take my price and let me have the books or not? I assure you I am all anxiety to get my nose inside one of those old covers before I sleep tonight. Heaven knows I was eager enough to accept. If you think for one moment you will see what his offer meant to me, with such a sum... I could not only pay off the money-lender, but well-nigh put myself straight with the rest of my creditors. Yet all the time I had the uneasy feeling that the books were no means worth the amount he had declared to be their value, and that he was only making me an offer out of kindness. 
Are you sure you mean it? Oh, I will accept, I said. I am awfully hard up, and the money will be a godsend to me. I am rejoiced to hear it, he replied, for in that case we should be doing each other a mutual good turn. Now let's get them tied up. If you wouldn't mind seeing to it, I'll write the cheque and call a cab. Ten minutes later, he and his new possessions had taken their departure, and I was once more in my room, standing beside the table, just as I had done a few hours before. But with what a difference! Then I had seen no light ahead, nothing but complete darkness and dishonour. Now I was a new man, and in a position to meet the majority of calls upon me. The change from the one condition to the other was more than I could bear. And when I remembered that less than sixty minutes before I was standing on that antechamber of death, the embankment, contemplating suicide, I broke down completely and sinking into a chair, buried my face in my hands and cried like a child. Next morning, as soon as the bank had opened its doors, I entered and cashed the cheque Calloran had given me, and calling a cab, I made my way with a light heart, as you may suppose, to the office of the money-lender in question. His surprise on seeing me, and on learning the nature of my errand, may be better imagined than described. Having transacted my business with him, I was preparing to make my way back to the hospital, when an idea entered my head upon which I immediately acted. In something under ten minutes I stood in the bookseller's shop in Holywell Street, where I had purchased the volumes Kelleran had appeared to prize so much. Some weeks ago, I said to the man who came forward to serve me, I purchased from you an old work on medicine entitled The Perfect Chirurgeon or the Art of Healing as Practiced in Diverse Ancient Countries. Seven volumes, very much soiled. Five and sixpence returned the man immediately. I remember the books. I'm glad of that, I answered. Now I want you to tell me what you would consider the real market value of the work. If it were wanted to make up a collection, it might possibly be worth a sovereign, the man replied promptly. Otherwise, not more than we asked you for it. Then you don't think anyone would be likely to offer a hundred and fifty pounds for it, I inquired. The man laughed outright. Not a man who has possession of his wits, he answered. No, sir, I think I've stated the price very fairly. Though, of course, it might fetch a few shillings, more or less, according to the circumstances. I'm very much obliged to you, I said. I simply wanted to know as a matter of curiosity. With that, I left the shop and made my way to the hospital, where I found Kelleran hard at work. He looked up at me as I entered and nodded, but it was well nigh lunchtime before I got an opportunity of speaking to him. Kelleran, I said when I did, you deceived me about those books last night. They were not worth anything like the value you put on them. He looked me full and fair in the face, and I saw a faint smile flicker around the corners of his mouth. My dear Ingleby, he said, what a funny fellow you are, to be sure. Surely if I choose to give you what I consider the worth of the books, I am at perfect liberty to do so. And if you are willing to accept it, no more need be said upon the subject. The value of a thing to a man is what he cares to give for it, so I have always been led to believe. But I am convinced you did not give it only because you wanted the books. You knew I was in straits, and you took that form of helping me. It was generous of you indeed, Kelleran, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. You saved me from... But there, I cannot tell you. I dare not think of it myself. But there is one thing I must ask of you. I want you to keep the books and to let the amount you gave me for them be a loan, which I will repay as soon as I possibly can. 
I was aware that he was a passionate man. Indeed, once or twice I had seen him in a rage, but never in a greater one than now. Let it be what you please, he cried, turning from me. Only for pity's sake drop the subject. I've had enough of it. With this explosion he stalked away, leaving me standing looking after him, divided between gratitude and amazement. I have narrated this incident for two reasons. In the first place, because it will furnish you with a notion of my own character, which I am prepared to admit exhibits but few good points. And in the second, because it will serve to introduce you to a queer individual, now a very great person, whom I shall always regard as the good angel of my life, and indirectly, it is true, the bringer about of the one and only real happiness I have ever known. From the time of the episode I have just described at such length to the present day, I can safely say that I have neither touched a card nor owed a man a penny piece that I was not fully prepared to pay at a moment's notice, and with this assertion I must revert to the statement made at the commencement of this chapter. The saddest a man can make, as I said then, there could be no doubt about it, that I was a failure. Although I had improved in the particulars just stated, fate was plainly against me. I worked hard and passed my examinations with comparative ease, yet it seemed to do me no good with those above me. The sacred fire of enthusiasm, which had at first been so conspicuously absent, had now taken complete hold of me. I studied night and day, grudging myself no labour, yet by some mischance everything I touched recoiled upon me, and like the serpent of the fable, stung the hand that fostered it. Certainly I was not popular, and since it was due almost directly to Kelleran's influence that I took to my work with such assiduity, it seemed strange that I should also have to attribute my non-success to his agency. As a matter of fact, he was not a good leader to follow. From the very first he had shown himself to be a man of strange ideas. He was no follower or stickler for the orthodox. To sum him up in plainer words, he was what might be described as an experimentalist. In return, the authorities of the hospital looked somewhat askance upon him. Finally he passed out into the world, and the same term saw me appointed to the rank of house surgeon. Almost simultaneously my father died, and to the horror of the family, an examination of his affairs, instead of proving him the wealthy man we supposed him to be, showed there was barely sufficient, when his liabilities were paid, to meet the expenses of his funeral. The shock of his death and the knowledge of the poverty to which he had been so suddenly reduced proved too much for my mother, and she followed him a few weeks later. Thus I was left, so far as I knew, without kith or kin in the world, with but a few friends, no money, and the poorest possible prospects of ever making it. The circumstances under which I lost the position of house surgeon I will not allude. Let it suffice that I did lose it, and that, although the authorities seem to think otherwise, I am in a position to prove, whenever I desire to do so, that I was not the real culprit. The effect, however, was the same. I was disgraced beyond hope of redemption, and the proud career I had mapped out for myself was now beyond my reach for good and all. Over the next twelve months, it would be better that I should draw a veil. Even now I scarcely like to think of them. It is enough for me to say that for upwards of a month I remained in London, searching high and low for employment. 
this however was easier looked for than discovered try how i would i could hear of nothing then weary of the struggle i accepted an offer made me and left england as a surgeon on board an outward bound passenger steamer for australia ill luck however still pursued me for at the end of my second voyage the company went into liquidation and its vessels were sold i shipped on board another boat in a similar capacity did two voyages in her to the cape where on a friend's advice i bade her good-bye and started for a shanty as surgeon to an inland trading company while there i was wounded in the neck by a spear was compelled to leave the company's service and eventually found myself back once more in london tramping the streets in search of employment fortunately i had managed to save a small sum from my pay so that i was not altogether destitute it was not long however before this was exhausted and then things looked blacker than they had ever done before what to do i knew not i had long since cast my pride to the winds and was now prepared to take anything no matter what then an idea struck me and on it i acted leaving my lodgings on the surrey side of the river i crossed blackfriars bridge and made my way along the embankment in a westerly direction as i went i could not help contrasting my present appearance with that i had shown on the last occasion i had walked that way then i had been as spruce and neat as a man could well be boasted a good coat to my back and a new hat upon my head now however the coat and hat instead of speaking for my prosperity as at one time they might have done bore unmistakable evidence of the disastrous change which had taken place in my fortunes indeed if the truth must be confessed i was about as sorry a specimen of the professional man as could be found in the length and breadth of the metropolis reaching the thoroughfare which i had heard kellerin had taken up his abode i cast about me for a means of ascertaining his number compared with that in which i myself resided this was a street of palaces and it seemed to me i could read the characters of the various tenants in the appearance of each house front the particular one before which i was standing at the moment was frivolous in the extreme front door was daintily painted an elaborate knocker ornamented the centre panel while the windows were without exception curtained with expensive stuffs everything pointed to the mistress being a lady of fashion and having put one thing and another together i felt convinced i should not find my friend there the next i came to was a residence of more substantial type here everything was solid and plain even to the borders of severity if i could sum up the owner he was a successful man a lawyer from choice a bachelor and possibly even probably a bigot on matters of religion he would have two or three friends not more i thought all of whom would be advanced in years and like himself successful men of business he would be able to appreciate a glass of dry sherry would have nothing to do with anything that did not bear the impress of being a gilt-edged security as neither of these houses seemed to suggest that they would be likely to know anything of the man i wanted i made my way farther down the street keeping my eyes open as i proceeded at last i came to a standstill before one that i was prepared to swear was inhabited by my old friend his character was stamped unmistakably upon every inch of it the untidy windows the pile of books upon the table behind them 
the marks upon the front door where his impatient foot had often pressed while he turned his latch-key all these spoke of kelleran and i was certain my instinct was not misleading me ascending the steps i rang the bell it was answered by a tall somewhat austere woman of between forty and fifty years of age upon whom a coquettish frilled apron and cap sat with an incongruous effect as i afterwards learnt she had been kelleran's nurse in bygone years and since he had become a householder she had taken charge of his domestic arrangements and ruled both himself and his maid-servants with a rod of iron would you be kind enough to inform me if mr kelleran is at home i asked after he had taken stock of each other he has been abroad for more than three months the woman answered abruptly then seeing the disappointment upon my face she added i don't know when we may expect him home he may be here on saturday and on the other hand we may not see him for two or three weeks to come perhaps you'll not mind telling me what your business with him may be it's not very important i answered humbly feeling that my position was to say the least of it an invidious one i am an old friend and i want to see him for a few minutes since however he's not at home it does not matter i assure you i shall have other opportunities of communicating with him at the same time you might be kind enough to tell him i called in that case you'd better let me know your name she replied with a look that suggested as plainly as any words could speak that she did not for an instant believe my assertion that i was a friend of her master's my name is ingleby i said mr kelleran will be sure to remember me we were at the same hospital she gave a scornful sniff as if such a thing would be very unlikely and then made as if she would shut the door in my face i was not however to be put off in this fashion taking a card from my pocket i scrawled upon it i scrawled my name and present address upon it and handed it to her perhaps if you will show that to mr kelleran he would not mind writing to me when he comes home i said that is where i am living just now she glanced at the card and then noting the locality sniffed even more scornfully than before it was evident this was the only thing wanting to confirm the bad impression i had created in her mind for some seconds there was an ominous silence very well she answered at length i'll give it to him but why heaven save us what's the matter you're as white as a sheet why didn't you say you were feeling ill i've been running it rather close for more than a week past and the news that kelleran my last hope was absent from england had unnerved me altogether a sudden giddiness seized me and under the influence of it i should have fallen to the ground had i not clutched the railings by my side it was then that the real nature of the woman became apparent like a ministering angel she half led half supported me into the house and seated me on a chair in the somewhat sparsely furnished hall friend of the master or no friend i heard her say to herself i'll take the risk of it i heard no more for my senses had left me when they returned i found myself lying upon a sofa in kelleran's study the housekeeper standing by my side and a maid-servant casting sympathetic glances at me from the doorway i am afraid i put you to a lot of trouble i said as soon as i had recovered myself sufficiently to speak i cannot think what made me go off like that i have never done such a thing in my life before you can't think queried the woman with a curious intonation that was not lost upon me then it's very plain you've not much wit about you i think young man i could make a very good guess at the truth if i wanted to howsoever let that be as it may 
I'll put a bit of it right before you leave this house, or my name's not what it is. And turning to the maid, who was still watching me, she continued sharply, Be off about your business, miss, and do as I told you. Are you going to waste all afternoon standing there, staring about you like a gabby? The girl disappeared, only to return a few minutes later with a tray upon which was a substantial meal of cold meat. On the old woman's authorisation, I sat down to it, and dined as I had not done for months past. There, she said with an air of triumph as I finished, that will make a new man of you. And having done all she could for me, and repenting perhaps of the leniency she had shown me, she returned to her former abrupt demeanour, and informed me in terms that there was no mistake in that her time was valuable, and that it behoved me to be off about my business as soon as possible. While she had been speaking, my eyes had travelled round the room until they alighted upon the mantelpiece. It was covered with pipes, books, photographs, and all the innumerable odds and ends that accumulate in a bachelor's apartment. Where I discovered my own portrait with several others. I remembered having given it to Kelleran two years before. It was not a very good one, but with its assistance I proposed to establish my identity, proved to my stern benefactor that I was not altogether the impostor she believed me to be. I cannot tell you how grateful I am to you for all you have done, I said, as I rose and prepared to make my departure from the house. At the same time, I am very much afraid you do not altogether believe that I am the friend of your masters that I pretend to be. Tut, tut, she answered. If I were in your place, I'd say no more about that. Least said, soon as mended is my motto. I trust, however, I am a Christian woman, and do my best to help folk in distress, but I've warned ye already that I have eyes in my head, and wit enough to tell what's o'clock just as well as my neighbours. Why, bless my soul, you don't think I've been all my years in the world without knowing what's what or who's who? She paused as if for breath, and embracing the opportunity, I crossed the room and took from the chimney-piece the photograph to which I had just alluded. Possibly this may help to reassure you, I said as I placed it before her. I do not think I have changed that much since it was taken, that you should fail to recognise me. She picked up the photo and looked at it, reading the signature at the bottom with a puzzled face. Heaven save us, so it is, she cried, when the meaning of it dawned upon her. You are Mr. Ingleby after all. Well, I'm a softy, to be sure. I thought you were trying to take me in. So many people come here asking to see him, saying they're at the hospital with him. If I'd have thought it really was you, I'd have bitten my tongue out before I'd have said what I did. Why, sir? Why, sir, the master talks of you to this day. Singleby this, and Ingleby that, from morning till night. Many's the time he's made inquiries from gentlemen who've been here, in the hope of finding out what has become of you. God bless him, I said, with my heart warming at the news that he had not forgotten me. We were the best of friends once. But, Mr. Ingleby, continued the old woman, after a pause, if you'll allow me to say so, I don't like to see you like this. You must have seen a lot of trouble, sir, to have got into such a state. The world has not treated me very kindly, I answered with an attempt at a smile. But I'll tell Kelleran all about it when I see him. You think it's possible he may be home on Saturday? I hope so, sir. I'm sure, she replied. You may be certain I'll give him your address and tell him you've called the moment I see him. I thanked her again for her trouble took my departure, feeling a very different man as I went down the steps and turned my face cityward. In my own heart I felt certain Kelleran would do something to help me. 
had i known however what that something was destined to be i wonder whether i should have awaited his coming with such eagerness as it transpired it was on the friday following my call at his house and on returning to my lodgings after another day's fruitless search for employment i found the following letter awaiting me the handwriting was as familiar to me as my own and it made me imagine with what eagerness i tore open the envelope and scanned the contents it ran my dear ingleby it was a pleasant welcome home to hear that you were in england once more i am sorry however to find from my housekeeper that affairs have not been prospering with you this must be remedied and at once i flatter myself i am just the man to do it it is possible you may consider me unfeeling when i say that there were never such luck as yours being in want of employment at this particular moment i have a billet standing by and waiting for you one of the very sort you are best fitted for and one which you will enjoy unless you have lost your former instincts you have never met dr nicola but you must do so without delay i tell you ingleby he is the most wonderful man with whom i have ever been brought in contact we chanced upon each other in st petersburg three months ago and since then he's had a fascination for me such as no other man has ever had i have spoken of you to him and in consequence he dines with me to-night in the hope of meeting you whatever else you do therefore do not fail to put in an appearance you cannot guess the magnitude of the experiment upon which he is at work first glance and in any other man it would seem incredible impossible almost absurd when however you have seen him i venture to say you will not doubt that he will carry it through let me count upon you to-night then at seven always your friend andrew fairfax kelleran i read the letter again what did it mean at any rate it contained a ray of hope it would have to be a very curious billet i told myself under present circumstances that i would refuse but who was this extraordinary individual dr nicola who seemed to have exercised such a fascination over my enthusiastic friend well that i had to find out for myself End of chapter one